1 Corinthians chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank you, Adrian. Um, you may have noticed that uh, it's not Advent, contrary to my... Uh, announcement last week. I got a little ahead of myself and just maybe anticipating the season a little bit too much. So um, Advent will start next week. So that's what we'll do. Um, let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, um, it is an amazing truth that you, you love us and that you set your love on us from the foundations of the world before we existed, before we did good or evil, before we pleased you or disappointed you. Lord, you had fixed your love on us. You had decided that you would love us. And Lord, you love your people so much that in the fullness of time, uh, Jesus came, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse, to redeem us from the curse of the law, to redeem us from our own sin, our own rebelliousness. And so, Lord, we're, we're amazed at that kind of a steadfast, stubborn, immovable love that is so fixed on people who completely opposite to you, who aren't interested in you, and that yet, Lord, you, you love us anyway. Thank you so much for that. And Lord, it's, it's uh, good to remember also that, uh, that the Lord loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son, too. Lord, there is a general grace, a grace towards all of creation that, um, that you express in the sun rising and setting, the rain falling on the just and the unjust. And uh, Lord, your mercy to those who are remain in rebellion against you is, is another sign of your amazing love and the care that you provide uh, is just startling. And Lord, we're, we're grateful that for that. We count on that. We count on you being consistent to your nature, that you are a God who cares. And so, Lord, with that in mind, we want to appeal to you on behalf of uh, the kidnapped um, Jews in uh, Gaza Lord, we thank you for the, the release that some of them have experienced so far. And Lord, we pray that more would be released soon. And uh, Lord, I just pray that Israel is careful in who they release in exchange for the, the, the hostages. Um, it's a 
difficult mathematical equation as far as who to hang on to and who to release and what the cost is. So Lord have mercy and uh, grant um, the leaders of Hamas grace and wisdom and, and, and mercy and uh, the same for Israel. And Lord, we look forward to a resolution to the, the conflict there. Have mercy on them. And Lord, just I want to pray again for Ukraine as well as they're still laboring under the Russian invasion. Uh, we pray that you would strengthen their resolve that uh, Russia would retreat and that we would see peace in the world or at least a little bit more. Uh, Lord, there are so many, so many things that are happening and it's hard to keep up with, with who's angry at who at any given point. So Lord, with that in mind, we just pray Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Uh, we look forward to your rule when peace will reign. And to that end, Lord, would you bless your word to our hearing and to our souls this morning. May that peace begin in us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, it is that time of year, not Christmas, but that time of year when, uh, in football season, we're beginning to talk about Super Bowls and playoffs and that kind of thing. And one of the things that happens often in these playoff games, college and professional sports, is airplane flyovers. Uh, aircraft, military aircraft will fly over fields or the, um, uh, the army will send in parachutists and they, they parachute in the middle of the field. And what you don't think about in those cases is, is how elaborate it is that those things happen. Because with the aircraft flyovers, like in a football game, the football game starts with the singing of the national anthem. And then as that last note is hit, and the home of the brave, all of a sudden the airplanes fly over. And the fans love it, and the players love it, and the coaching staff love it, and I love it. And it just seems so effortless that it just happens. These airplanes just go floating past. And what you don't think about is what goes into making that possible? How do they get right there at the last note of the national anthem? How do they land on time on that? And one of the ways is they have a, a pilot who is not flying, who's on the ground at the stadium, and he's got a radio with which to communicate uh, to communicate to the, uh, the, the aircraft in flight. And he's usually not on the ground. He's usually very high up in the stadium listening. And so that, that pilot is called a forward air controller. And so the, the FAC, or the forward air controller, is listening to the national anthem. They've got it marked out how many seconds till the end of the song. And so they're calling that out on the radio. So many seconds, five seconds, three seconds, two seconds. And so when they say one, the aircraft zoom right over top. But how do the aircraft get there? How does that happen? I mean, it's great that they have somebody calling it out. What you don't think about with the aircraft is those aircraft have to be staged and ready to go. They have to have figured out exactly how they're going to do this and be in communication with, the, with the, uh, the forward air controller. So what happens is these aircraft will decide beforehand what's going to happen. And if their aircraft are different places, they've got to figure all of this out together. So I watched a video of a flyover. It was a P-51 Mustang, a World War II prop-driven dri fighter, an F-16, which is a fourth-generation supersonic aircraft, and two A-10s, which are fourth-generation subsonic attack aircraft. How do you get that variety together to be able to fly over a stadium at the exact same moment? It takes a lot of coordination. So they have the flight lead is going to come in and fly through that area before, you know, maybe the week before the, the game, and they're looking for obstacles. Uh, one of them, the, the flight lead said, okay, well, there's a tall building and there's a crane on top of it, but it's far enough, far enough to the south, I don't think it'll interfere. 
but you've got to be aware of this and that, and we're going to approach the, the stadium from this direction at this airspeed, and we'll fly across, and, and that's how we'll do it. So that takes a lot of coordination, a lot of effort. But how do they get there? Well, they have to take off hours before the game. They match up, especially if they're coming from different locations. They, they meet up. They get into formation, and then they find a spot not too close but not too far away from the, air, the, uh, the stadium to go into a holding pattern. And then they know exactly what airspeed they have to be at. They've already calculated that because, like, a, a P-51, they ain't going supersonic. <laughs> Neither is an A-10. And an and a F-16 is not going to go 100 knots and not fall out of the sky. So they have to come up with a happy medium. And then they figure out how long will it take to get from point A to over top of that stadium at that second. And so they know all of this stuff. They have it all planned out. And so when they get that call from the forward air controller, they know to go zooming right across that. So it's just an amazing amount of coordination that goes into that. Why does the military do that? Why would they spend so much time and effort to fly over a football game for three seconds? And how long does it take for the aircraft to get across the field? Not very long. Well, one chief reason is, um, is uh, advertising, want goodwill. You're hoping that maybe there's a, a, a kid in the stadium that looks up and sees those airplane go by and go, I want to do that when I grow up. So then they could get some recruiting. It's also nice for us who pay our taxes and expect our military to be precise and accurate and, and available to see them and go, oh, that's what I'm spending my money on. So it gives us a sense of, of, um, of understanding of what's going on with our military, sense of pride in what they're doing. But how does it get paid for? That's usually the bottom line. Now, if you're the Blue Eagles or the, uh, the Blue Angels or the um, Thunderbirds, that's a separate bucket of money. That's you know that's all promotional funds. That's all paid for. But those A-10s and that F-16, who paid to put them in the air? Well, I heard an interview, and the flight lead on that said, actually, the money that they spend to put those planes across those stadiums comes from training. It's their training budget. Why would they spend training money on that? Because one of the other reasons that they do those things is not just for advertising and goodwill and that kind of thing. One of the most important things that the Air Force can do is to put a plane over the target that they're supposed to be at at the right moment. It's got to be highly coordinated. So imagine a, a scenario where we're going to go in and, and, and hit something. The first round of aircraft might be F-35s coming in, and they're going to take out the anti-aircraft missiles. And they're going to be in and out. They have to come in at this angle, go out at that heading, because they don't want to run into the other aircraft that are coming in. So the anti-aircraft are taken out. Now some, maybe some 16s or some A-10s come in with some bombs, and they're going to fly from this direction and hit that, and then they're out. And so they have this carefully orchestrated one moment after the next, after the next. One of the chief things that the Air Force does is on time, on target. It, it's highly coordinated. It, it is not just, you know, Tom Cruise in an F-18 kind of doing what he wants. It's, it's organized right down to the very moments of when he's, people are going to be there. And so this on-time, on-target idea is crucial. It's, it's really important for, for the military to be effective. And what Paul is going to show us this morning is, is those two things are important for us too. As we're dealing with life now, we have to remember where we're at in time, and we have to remember where our targets are. So that's what we're going to see this morning in this, this talk about um, lawsuits, if you can imagine that. The first, the first portion, which is uh, verses uh, 1 through 3, no, I'm sorry, 1 through 6, um, have to do with our current situation. We're going to give the intel. We're going to do a pre-flight briefing. 
we're going to understand what our current situation is and what our mission is, what our goal is. And so that's, that's where are we going? Who are we and where are we going? What are we doing? And then the next two verses will be our map. How will we get there? What's going to take us to that direction? And then the last section is the assurance of how do we know we'll be able to do it? Do we have the resources we need to be able to accomplish that mission? So can you tell I'm a military vet? Can you tell I'm ex-Air Force? Um, just kind of seeps out every once in a while. But I think the analogy works, and, and hopefully you'll see why. So here's how it begins. Paul says, um, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So the, the Corinthians, they're a pretty big mess, aren't they? The first part was they were divided over who their favorite leader was or who their favorite preacher was or who started their church or something. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. So they were dividing up for what Paul says is that's not the right reason. And then the next thing that comes up is, oh, by the way, you have a man living with his stepmother and you're not doing anything about that. Where you should be divided, you're not dividing. And so now he kind of comes back around again and he says, now, now look at what's going on. Somebody is defrauded and they take their brother in Christ to the courts and, and not to the church, but to the unbelievers, to, to the regular civil courts. And that just blows his mind. He's like, you don't know what you're doing. So this our situation is we're in a muddled mess. We're not sure what's going on. Um, so he, he, I think what he's talking about here, I think the problem that the Corinthians are having where they're going to court with each other has to do with money. And the reason I say that is because in verse 3 it says, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? If, you can, if we're going to judge the angels and judge the world, how much more matters pertaining to this life? And that phrase is a phrase that we used in courts. And it was kind of like daily matters, uh, money matters. But even more, verses 7 and 8 talk about being defrauded. And that has to do with money. So it sounds like you got two people in the church. One person promised this and paid for it. The other person didn't get it. Um, and now there's a dispute. And instead of reconciling with each other, they just automatically go to court is what it sounds like. So they're, they're just this kind of confused mess. They don't, they don't know exactly what's going on. And what Paul says to them is really amazing. He says, how can you go to the unbelievers? How can you go before the world to get these disputes settled between you? Isn't there no one in the church who's wise enough to do this in, in the body of Christ? Can't you get a couple of friends together and discuss this? The, the default setting is to go to, uh, to court. And he uses that phrase, is, is there no one wise enough to settle this? That's really a, a kind of a sting to them because remember earlier they were kind of proud of their wisdom the, the greek idea of wisdom is you know the, the rhetorical stuff but paul's point here in this first section is you have the capacity to deal with these questions yourself you have the capability you have what you need to decide these matters yourself and and what is that he looks to the future he says do you not know that the saints will judge the world and in verse three do you not know that you will judge angels so if our future, if, the, if the, the, the target area that we're heading towards is we will judge the world, can't we decide simpler things now? Can't we decide on those things now? Can't we wrestle through those questions now? So when is it that we will judge the world? Are we doing it currently? Is, is it something that uh, uh, some people believe that when the, most of the world is Christian, then that's when we will judge the world? Um, others say that it's happening now, but it's spiritual. And some others say that, well, that's all going to happen at the last judgment. So 
The problem is I don't think all of those answers really get their arms around all of what the scriptures have to say about us judging the world. So let me take a look at this. For example, we are not ruling now. We are not judging the world now, right? Um, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, Paul said, Without us you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might rule with you. Very sarcastically, but he says you're not reigning. So at this point in, in history, the church isn't reigning. We're not judging the, the nations. As a matter of fact, in, in the last chapter we looked at, Paul said explicitly, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He explicitly denies we are not judging those outside the church, but there is a time coming when we will judge the nations. As a matter of fact, not only are we not judging them, we're subject to them at this point. First, uh, uh, Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. First Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are not ruling. We are not judging. We are subject to these things at this point. So I don't think saying that we're doing it now really fits the answer. Um, the idea that, well, we will when we take over the world, when most of the world is Christian, the problem with that is we don't rule without Jesus here. Um, and I get that from Revelations 3. In, in one of the Revelations, I, I really get upset when people say Revelations. The name of the book is Revelations, singular. Don't let me get away with that again. Anybody catches me doing that? Show us something, Matt. Um, Revelation 3, um, in the letters to the churches, one of the places it, Jesus, promise, uh, Jesus promises, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So the promise is that we will rule, but we will rule with Jesus. We will rule from Jesus' throne. He will be there. So I don't think the now or soon really kind of captures everything the scriptures has to say about it. Well, what about the last judgment? The idea is Jesus returns, sets up the white throne, judges the living and the dead, and that's it. Um, the problem with that is we're not going to be judging then, I don't think. You know, the way the scriptures talk about it, it's more him who's judging. So in Matthew 25, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered the nations, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will do this, not we. He will do that. And then in Revelation, when uh, at the end of Revelation, Revelation 20, we get a glimpse of that happening. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found before them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. So in that case, Jesus is doing all the judging. And by the way, we'll be standing before that throne being judged as well. The good news is, hopefully for all of us, we'll find our name will be found in the book. But it's Jesus does all that. So I don't think the last judgment necessarily captures that idea that, that we will be ruling. But this isn't the only place in the Bible that mentions it. Jesus himself in Luke 22 said, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus himself said we will be judging. And then Revelation 2 
another promise to one of the churches, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. So do you see the problem there? Is we, we are not going to rule the nations, we're not going to judge the world apart from Jesus. It'll be with Jesus. But it's not the final judgment because Jesus is the only one judging at that point. So then when? When will that happen? I, I think the answer comes in, in a contested verse, but I, I think it makes the most sense. Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge has, had been committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received a mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it, it sounds like there's this other time. There's the not now and the not then, but there's an intermediate time between that. And it's when Christ comes and we rule with him for what it says is a thousand years. In Revelation, numbers are very symbolic and, and mean other things. I don't think it means a literal thousand years. It means a fullness, an appropriately long, robust, full time. But at that point, what this says is, they came to life and reigned with Christ. Who is they? Those who had the authority to judge, the souls of those who had been beheaded, and those who had not worshipped the beast. In other words, the church. So I take that to mean that there is a time coming when Jesus will raise his church and that we will rule on this earth with him. Well, when is that? This is the bad news, folks. Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision, and he says, And I looked. And this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So this horn is one of the horns of the beast pops up. That's one of the rulers. And so there's this ruler. Daniel sees in the future there is this ruler coming, and he will make war with the saints. And not only will he make war with the saints, but he will prevail over them. And how long will he prevail over them? Until the ancient of days came. Until Jesus returns. And judgment was given for them is how it translates it. Another way to translate it would be to them. Judgment was given to them of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So I think that's looking forward to that time also. So there's a time in the future that we will judge the nations. We will rule over the nations. It's not without Christ. Jesus will be here. He will be like kind of the Supreme Court. He will be the ultimate judge. But we will have authority over lesser things, and we will rule over the nations. So Paul's point is this. If that's your future, if that's where you're going to wind up, do you think you're incapable of judging now? Do you think you're incapable of deciding difficult matters now if you're going to judge the world? That, that's his point. Okay, so what about the angels? This is the only place in the Bible that mentions that we will judge the angels. But Paul mentions it as if it's a done deal. Like, a, it, you should know this. Why don't you guys understand this? You're going to judge the angels. So when will we judge the angels? Bottom line, simplest answer, I don't know. I'm not sure. I really don't have any idea. Because this is the only place it's mentioned. What I do know is we will judge the angels. I just can't say exactly when. There was one interesting interpretation of this, though, that I, I found strangely compelling. I'm not sure I buy it completely, but I think it's pretty good. One theory is that there are angels who rule nations. 
So, for example, Daniel 10 talks about Michael. Michael is the prince of Daniel's people. In other words, he's the prince of Israel. And, and the person who told him that was wrestling with the prince of Persia. And so these are angels that are wrestling, and they seem to be angels that have some sort of authority or some sort of place over the nations. Um, as a matter of fact, that's not the only place that's mentioned. Another place is Deuteronomy 32. Um, Moses writes, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So it sounds like it could be that these sons of God are these angelic rulers and authorities over these different nations. And so there, the, Jesus, uh, the New Testament talks about Jesus disarming these authorities and these rulers. So if that's true, then we will rule the na angels and we will rule the nations or we will judge the angels and we will judge nations is really the same thing because the angels are in charge of those nations. And so if that's true, it makes Paul's statement really, really ironic that you're going to the nations and asking them to rule. Because not only are you going to rule, not only are you going to judge them, but you're going to judge their authorities, their spiritual authorities that are over them. So why on earth would you go to them for a decision? Don't you understand who you are? Don't you understand where you're going? It makes it really super ironic that they're doing that. And that's, that's his point, is he's saying you guys shouldn't be going to civil courts. Now, having said that, what I think that looks like practically within a church is there are matters we can get together and we can decide. Even if you have something really, you know, a, a business-related uh, thing with a brother in Christ in the church, you can come to the church and we can help. We can help rule in those things. Does that mean that no Christian should ever go to court anywhere at any time? I have heard some Christians say that, and I don't think the Bible supports it. Why did I say that? Because what did Paul do when he was arrested? Well, sometimes he just submitted. He just kind of took it. When he was arrested in Ephesus, he was beaten and thrown in prison without a trial. And word gets back that, oh, he's a Roman citizen, and he can't do that. And so what did Paul do? Did he just kind of go, okay, well, never mind? No, he's, when, the, when the rulers of Ephesus said, yeah, let him go, he said, no, they're coming down here and they're escorting me out of this jail. I have rights. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. When he returned to Jerusalem toward the end of the book of Acts and, he's, and the, the crowd has a big uproar and, and uh, tries to kill him and, and the centurion grabs him and pulls him into the barracks and binds him to get ready to beat him, he says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they freak out. They're like, oh, my gosh, we can't beat a Roman citizen without a, a trial. This is illegal. And so they rush him off to the, the, the uh, governor of the area. And even then, he, he uses his legal authority. He says, I appeal to Caesar. So there are times when we have to go to court. It's not saying never go to court. What Paul's point is, is what his point has been all along, is in the side of the church with each other, there are certainly things we can handle. There are certainly things we can deal with. There are things that could happen within a church that may be bigger than us. Maybe the law of the land is so strong or so important that we can't just handle it ourselves. It would be unwise. And so what's going on here is it, it, it takes some discernment, some understanding of this. This is why Paul brings this up. He says, you guys, you should know better. You, you should know you can handle certain things and you can't handle certain other things. Um, in cases such as these, trivial cases, things that pertain to life, the the daily kind of things, 
Surely you can do that. And so in verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. You should be ashamed of yourself that you can't handle these things. I say this to your shame. Can there be none wise enough among you to settle this, that brother goes to brother in court and that before unbelievers? So that's where it takes the wisdom to say, what will this look like if we have two Christians going to court before unbelievers? Will it look like, boy, these Christians just can't get along over the most simple, the most trivial things? Why are they in small claims court over a scratch on a car? They couldn't work this out between themselves? That, that's where he's going with that. So time over target. This is, this is what's going on. We've just got the layout. Where are we now and where are we heading? How are we going to get there? So where we are now is we're in a muddled mess. We're trying to figure this stuff out. Where we're going is to this glorious future in which we will rule the nations. We will judge the nations. We will judge angels. That's the layout. That's the, the plan. So how do we get there? What, what's the way we're going to get there? The map is verses 7 and 8. This is how we're going to get there. This is how we'll get to that place. Verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits against, uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So the the plan here, the map to get from where we are now to that place where we'll be able to judge the nations is Jesus, is to be more like Jesus now, today, in this situation. So Jesus is the one who suffered wrong and didn't, um, didn't retaliate. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Could he be more plain on that? He's, he's left you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So how do we get from this place where we're, we're arguing and, and, and fighting with each other and arguing over the simplest little things to this place where we're going to judge the nations? Jesus has let a, left us the example. He, he's, he's laid it out before us. Peter goes on to say in, in chapter 3, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called, that you may obtain a blessing. So there's the picture, is is this is what we're supposed to do. Jesus is our example. By the way, if you're a disciple of Jesus, that means Jesus is your teacher and he's going to tell you what to do. Jesus had some words about this. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, you go two with them. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So our master has left us an example and he's left us instructions. So that means for us to get to that place, what we begin to practice now is enduring with one another. All our, bolt, bolt, <laughs> I'm sorry, all our bumps and warts, all our difficulties, all our quirks, we, long, we experience long-suffering, patience, kindness, and we deal with each other now as to the greatest degree possible. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we absolutely, in every 100% of the situations, turn into doormats and never, never um, uh, argue about anything or anything. Jesus is our example. And so when we have to follow Jesus, what we're doing is we're following him, not rules, right? We're following how our master is. So we have to know when to fight and when to forgive, and that takes care. It takes compassion, and it takes wisdom. So, for example, Jesus could look at the Pharisees and blast them, tell them, you, are, you guys are whitewashed tombs, and you're making disciples who are twice as worse as you are. He could blast them, but then at the same time, he could turn to a rich young ruler who comes to him and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus would say, look at him with compassion and say, just sell everything you've got. You're, you're too tied up in your material goods. Come and follow me. He didn't blast them. He, he had care and compassion with them. But when the Pharisees, who he said, you load up burdens on widows and you won't lift your pinky to help them, he doesn't have any mercy on them. He had to know who he was talking to. He had to be be kind and, and compassionate with those who deserved it and direct and clear when those, with those who weren't. So what I'm saying is when we, when we have to do this, what we have to do is we, we have to bear with one another. We have to take some loss onto ourselves because when you forgive somebody for something, if they've legitimately done it to you, you have taken the loss yourself. You say, I'll own that. And there are times where we're just called to take that loss for the sake of peace. But we have the, the, I think the goal here, the aim is, what, what helps clarify it, is you're looking at the other person and you're saying, what would be best for them? What would serve them the most? In this case, this person constantly lives off everybody else's generosity. They need a rebuke. They, they need to be told to, to step up and to do their part. This other person, they're kind, they're generous, they're just not doing particularly well at this moment. Maybe this person will just endure the loss for me. So... It, we're dealing with people, and people are complicated. And, and it's hard to figure out when we should do that and when we should not. Um, but the promise here is, the hope is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ as we're saved. So one of the, um, I think one of the mistakes that I kind of had without thinking about it is we're saved. We were talking about this in Sunday school. We're saved. We, we trust in Christ. And then at some point in the future, We'll just be zapped and we'll, we'll have it all figured out. We'll be perfect. We'll be like him. When we see him, First uh, uh, John 3, um, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as we are, so, or as he is. So when Jesus returns and zap, we're all good. We'll have it all figured out. Um, but he says we're children of God now, and so God is working in us now. So we're not judging the, the nations right now, but we're not, not doing anything. You know what I mean? We're, we're somehow growing in the middle of that. We should be growing more Christ-like. Romans 8 says that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. The place that we're going, the direction that we're heading is we're becoming more and more Christ-like. Now, when we get to the end, that's when all the sin, all the confusion, all that stuff will be gone. We'll be like him because we'll see him like as he is. But until then, God is working in us and, and working through us, and we're not just sitting and doing nothing. So this dispute that you have in the church, you guys need to dissolve. You need, you need to resolve it yourselves. That's what Paul is saying, is you need to begin to act like that's where you're heading. You need to begin to live like where you're going. You need to live with, with all of those things, the compassion and, and all of that. How on earth am I going to get there? 
what insurance do I have? I have tried it, and, and I'm telling you I'm not doing too good. I still have problems. I still have bumps in the road. So how do I know I'm going to get there? And that's where we get to the last part. We have an assurance that we will make it, that God is not not engaged with us now. He's not abandoned us. He's not going to just flip a switch when we get there and everything's perfect. And he's also made this promise that, well, we're still going to be working through it here. And so the last section of the, the um, or the last verses of the section, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There is a thing called those outside. There is a category of those who are excluded from the kingdom, that glorious kingdom that's coming when Jesus reigns. There will be those who are outside of it. We can get fascinated by the list of vices. Isn't that great? Look at this list of really interesting vices, and everybody is like that except for me. I'm not like that. I'm so glad I'm not like that. Um, that's not really Paul's point. He's, he's listing some of the common problems that they have. Um, sexually immoral, we've already dealt with that. We talked about that with the man who had his, uh, his uh, stepmother. Um, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, all of those. There is that category that are excluded. And here's the great news. Here's the tremendous promise that Paul gives us in this. And such were some of you. You were like that. God didn't say, well, I'm going to save them and leave them like that. Some such um, and, and such were some of you. You had those problems. You had those, those issues in your life. That was how we were before we came to Christ. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And that's the tremendous hope. That's how we know that we will be fit to be part of the kingdom is because where we were was adulterers and swindlers and homosexuals and, and those other things. Where, that's where we were. But when we came to Christ, we were washed. A ceremonial washing. So the priests, when they came into the, the temple to offer sacrifice, they would ceremonially wash to remove their, unclean, their uncleanliness. Not to remove sin. Sin was removed by sacrifice. To wash was to say, I'm clean. I'm, I'm ready to come into the temple. You were washed. You were sanctified. Sanctification comes from the, the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. You were sanctified. You are being made holy. You are provisionally, positionally made holy because you're in Christ. Now, this is a holy person. This is a person who's been set apart for God's purposes. But we're also being sanctified. We're growing in that holiness. We're becoming who we've been declared to be. We are sanctified. We are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be justified is to be pronounced not innocent, but righteous. Not just not guilty, but actively righteous. They've done the right thing. How are we justified? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we have been declared righteous is because we're in Christ. And it's by the spirit of our God. We've talked about it earlier. The spirit is that seal, that sign of the, whole, of the covenant. This is the one who has brought this to us. And he is the spirit who is the guarantee looking forward to that time when Jesus returns and we rule and reign with him, when we're saved ultimately, when, when sin is done away with. That's what the spirit is doing in us now. 
is he's working in us, he's leading us in that direction, he's taking us to that point. That's what sanctification means. Such were some of you. So go back and, and, and let's, let's take a look at our, our um, uh, mission brief here and see where we're going. Where we're at now is we're discombobulated. We're all over the place. We don't know where we're supposed to be or what we're doing. Where we're going is we're going to the kingdom of God. We're heading in that direction. We will get there at the right time. We will be on time, on target, at the right place at the right time. When is that? When Jesus returns. That's when we'll get the mark on the radio that says we're ready. But between now and then, we have a map. We have a direction that we're heading. We've been told where we should be heading into, where our holding pattern is going to be before we get to that, that final destination. And that map is Jesus Christ. That he's laid that out for us with mercy and kindness, with righteousness, with righteous anger and, and, and holy um, mercy on others. And so that's where we're going. And how do we know we'll get there? Because you have been washed. Because you have been sanctified because you have been justified. That's our guarantee that we know our flight lead will get us over the target on time. That's where we're heading. And it's so much better than the Super Bowl, by the way. <laughs> Just, you know, any, any illustration you use is going to break down at some point. We're gonna, the Super Bowl will be a forgotten memory compared to what we get to enjoy when Jesus returns. And so that's where we're going to head. That's, that's the direction that we're going. And then we have to stop here. We're going to do uh, Advent next so we'll get to the second half of six in uh, in the new year um i by god's mercy and probably because you guys were praying for me because i asked you to i figured out what we're going to do for advent we're going to look at john the baptist um, who is the personification of advent right he came pointing to jesus and saying not me but the one who comes after me so we'll take three weeks to look at different aspects of john the baptist and how he points us to jesus and how advent points us to jesus so that's where we're going to go but in the meantime, don't forget your mission brief. Don't forget where we're at now and where we're heading. Don't forget the time hack, and we're watching for that. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're grateful that you are the one who's leading. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for you, that you are the one who has set the example, laid it out before us. And then, Lord, by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, you are conforming us to your image. You're leading us in that same direction. And so, Lord, we have confidence to know that one day we will be fit to judge the nations and the angels, whatever that means, whatever that looks like at that time. But, Lord, in the meantime, we just I want to pray for all of us that, that we are growing in that sanctification, that we are continuing to walk, that we are um, watching and thinking of how to judge people inside the church. That's who we're supposed to judge first, not those outside. Uh, to look at the outside world and think these people are excluded from the kingdom and, and Lord, have mercy on them and, uh, and feel sympathy for them and, and understand that they're slaves to their sin and, and pray for their deliverance and, and bring the hope of the gospel to them for their deliverance. And in the side of the church, Lord, I pray that we will treat each other with long-suffering, with patience and kindness, with uh, an appropriate amount of enduring loss on, our, on, our on their behalf so that they might grow in Christ as well. Help us to see Jesus in all of us and to desire more of him. And Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.